the Geopolitics and Empire podcast is joined by returning guest Patrick Wood, who is the go-to expert on all things technocracy. He's the author of Trilaterals Over Washington, Technocracy Rising and Technocracy, the Heart Road to World Order. His website is technocracy.news. And he'll tell us about his new initiative, Citizens for Free Speech, which you can find at citizensforfreespeech.org. Patrick, the world has gone mad. How have you been? I haven't gone mad yet. I'm, I'm hanging on to my mind just, you know, so ever so tight. I'm sure you are, too. It's like you wake up every morning and you, you, you go like this. You pinch yourself and it's, it's like literally almost you say, am I crazy today? Especially with some of the stories that I was going to bring up in some of my questions, just like every day I'm falling off my chair. I, I, I can't believe like really, you know, even though we've been looking at this, for, we, we've been knowing this was coming for decades, but still, it's just unbelievable. And so um, in this, our second interview, um, the, the last time we spoke was uh, two years ago and people can um, go, go back and check out that interview. I'll, I'll include the link in the description. Um, I spoke to you from Kazakhstan and now I'm here in Mexico, but I, I don't really want to discuss what technocracy uh, or the Great Reset is because I think we are in the thick of it, you know, in the eye of the storm. I mean, it's the designated day or D-Day, and you're standing on the beaches of Normandy as Operation Overlord is underway. If you don't know the basics on technocracy by now, seriously, you know, come on, go buy Patrick Wood's books on technocracy as, as soon as you finish listening to this podcast. There are also numerous great interviews uh, that, that Patrick has given explaining the basics. Uh, I really want people to do the groundwork and to do their homework. I don't think there are any more excuses you know a, a diet of cute short conspiracy clips from instagram or telegram just doesn't cut it you know i get emails from people still asking me simple questions that can be answered using a simple internet search i don't have time for that you know come on people the, the hour is late so to start I, I wanted to get uh patrick your assessment of where you think we currently are in the midst of this great technocratic uh, reset and advance of the new world order because frankly it's <laughs> it's looking pretty bad it is. In January of 2020, when the whole COVID thing was just breaking, that's I think it was the 29th of January, that the World Health Organization declared a pandemic. I was, <clears throat> I was already watching very closely the organizations that instigated the panic around the world, places like, uh, you know, some of the universities in England, for instance, the, the climate alarmist crowd, mostly. And when I saw them jump over and mass, same same MO, same people, in some cases, same computer models, when they jumped over onto the pandemic uh, thing, let's just call it the thing, um, I knew that there was something big brewing, and I declared it almost immediately as technocracy's coup d'etat. I had predicted that. I think we probably talked about this before in my first book, uh, technocracy rising, the Trojan horse of global transformation. I predicted there would be a day when the technocrats had um, achieved a majority or let's say a tipping point worth of uh, objectives and their agenda uh, to where they would declare basically game over. They would go for it. They, they, you know, for the, for those who ever played a game of hearts with cards, you call it shooting the moon, right? You know, when you got that last Trump card, Hey, the game is over. All you got to do is play out the cards. I saw that, that as being fulfilled, uh, in January of 2020. 
And uh, if I know somebody might be scratching their head, well, what are you, a prophet? No, I wouldn't, not at all. But, you know, I understand the technocrat mind. It, it's typically an engineering slash scientific mind. People that are given over to that discipline are very disciplined about creating requirements analysis for things. They, that's their life, basically. Somebody says, well, hey, let's get a project going for X, whatever X is, doesn't matter. Let's get a project going. The first thing that an engineer will do is pull out a quadril pad. That's for you, for the old timers, that's the thing that has little blue lines on a piece of paper. And you'll start writing, number one, what's the first thing we need to do? Number two, what's the second thing we need to do? What do we need to acquire? What do we need to have surrounding our project to make it successful? How are we going to know when we are ready to do final testing? That's what engineers do. That's their business. And so if technocrats were behind the global takeover in the first place, you would fully expect them to have such a requirements analysis to hold up, you know, like a, um, you know, like literally on a piece of paper, hold it up and say, okay, check, check, check. We, okay, this is a check, you know, and go down and say, you know what? We've got it now. We've got, we can, we can go for it. We can shoot the moon, as I said. I think that's exactly what they did. And every month that goes by, every week that goes by since then has confirmed my, my suspicion. Um, and now I see it coming out of the mouths of all kinds or the pens of all kinds of writers around the world that there has been a global coup d'etat. The problem is they don't understand who's behind it and who the actors are. You know, it's like, I suppose it's like landing on the beach in Normandy, which we did once, right? You land on the beach and there are bullets flying everywhere and, you know, bombs and airplanes, whatever. But all you conclude without knowing anything else is say, I think we're at war. Somebody's shooting at us. But if you don't know the, who the enemy is, how are you going to take the beach? <laughs> You know, if you don't, if you can't recognize that enemy, if you don't know what their uniform looks like, for instance, um, or what the purpose of the war is, you're just going to sit there and scratch your head until somebody finally shoots you. <laughs> you're out of the game. Yeah, I, I think one of the few using that term has been Robert Kennedy Jr., who recently in his speeches says, I think he's used the term technocracy, and he's called it a global coup d'etat. He's pointed fingers uh, at the CIA, who ran uh, a number of these simulations, and along with the other, you know, usual suspects that that that, that we know of, you know, the World Economic yes. Forum, the CDC, the Chinese CDC, um, John Hopkins, so all this this group of of, of te technocrats, and so. Um, you know, and just to look at some of the trends then that are accelerating, uh, you know, your newsletter is great. I, I open uh, every email. You usually have two to three pieces uh, of news or news headlines highlighting uh, the trends in technocracy. In fact, I think uh, just an hour ago, you, you had published uh, your latest. And, you know, we're seeing the digitalization and automation of of everything, especially in these last two years with software and robots and, and drones and it's insane the pace at, at which it's all occurring. You know, they've got, I'm seeing all these videos now online of restaurants with no people that, 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 uh, where you have robots making and serving the pizza, Amazon delivery drones. You've got little sidewalk bots 
that are now replacing the human food delivery, such as Uber Eats uh, and education. They're talking about basically replacing human teachers with uh, virtual teachers. And so, you know, how do you feel about this trend? Uh, this is the fourth industrial revolution, right? And so th this is kind of, of what you said, the, the, the shooting the moon. So they've now detonated two years ago. Uh, everything and and now they're they're moving along with the fourth industrial revolution so you know what are your thoughts on these trends uh, in technocracy that we're seeing well the 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 minor the minor trends and i say minor trends because they're not causative they're a symptom of <clears throat> when we talk about robots and automation like that physical automation that's definitely a symptom of and, and also a marker <clears throat> that there are technocrats at work, you know, trying to provide solutions that nobody really asked for in the first place, especially displacing all the, all the entry-level jobs in society. That's pretty important. Um, but, you know, young people, like, you know, they, they can't go in bulk now to McDonald's to get their first job. <laughs> they won't when the robots get done flipping the burgers. <laughs> Got to be a lonely, a lonely place for young people. <clears throat> but... Um, the fourth industrial revolution, if, if we kind of jump from there over to the Great Reset crowd, and, and I want to purposely want to do that to talk about the World Economic Forum, because they're, they're kind of embodying this whole thing we're talking about right now. They're, they're, they may not all be involved directly as causative, but there are some people certainly within that crowd that are at the very, very top of this global coup d'etat. <clears throat> and it, it has a very uh, a, a comparable mix to what we saw with the Trilateral Commission back in the 1900, uh, back, well, 1973, when it was formed by Brzezinski and Rockefeller. They brought in legal firms, media firms, um, multinational corporations. They brought in um, <clears throat> some pol high-level politicians. There was a mix of people that they intentionally brought into the Trilateral Commission, and then they executed their plans, and basically they hid so that nobody could really, you know, would be aware of what they're doing. Well, they were hiding back then. They're not hiding anymore. Now we see pretty much the same mix of people accumulating within the World Economic Forum, and the whole vision has been so uh, crystallized in their mind that they now can can be public. They can now write openly about what they're doing, and they are. And we don't have to guess anymore at all about what's going on. And so <clears throat> the World Economic Forum that is uh, talking about the Great Reset, they're talking about building back better. There's one key thing that people are missing in this battle, and that is that until capitalism and free market economics are slaughtered on the altar, the Great Reset cannot build back better. It, it, it presupposes that our current economic system is going to be utterly crushed to death. This was, a, this was kind of the scenario back in the 1930s when, when technocracy originally came to be, the Great Depression. And by 19, after the great crash of 29, by 1932, uh, America was in the most desperate economic situation ever been in, in its history. Uh, 
It was horrible. There were soup lines, unemployment lines. Uh, people were dying of diseases and stuff. They couldn't, you know, had no money to get medical help. And so it was a horrible, depressing time in our history. And this is where the technocrat model was originally created for, you know, a resource-based economic system. And they believed without any help by them, they believed that the economic system was dead. They thought it was just burned to the ground and they were going to build back better back then. Well, <clears throat> Capitalism and free market economics is like um, it's like the biggest cruise ship in the world. <laughs> it doesn't turn real fast, you know. It, you can't sink it real fast, and so it keeps surviving over the decades. It's we we pulled out World War II. We had the the '60s, '70s, '80s, '90s. There was ups and downs, but and some pretty severe recessions, but. It keeps on plugging along. And I am positive that these technocrats have been thinking for a long time, we're getting sick and tired of this. This, this monster to them, this monster of capitalism and free market economics has got to go once and for all. Crush it. Get rid of it so we can implement our resource-based economic system. Some call it the green economy. Some call it sustainable development. I call it technocracy. Some people call it the fourth industrial revolution. It doesn't matter really what the name is. The end result is get rid of the old and bring in the new. So kind of coming back full circle with, with your original question, what's happening today is exactly this. The global economic system is being snuffed. It is, it's just plain as the nose on your face. If you see it that way, you can't unsee it. At every turn, you know, how after two years, how could this lockdown mentality continue to go everywhere? How could it, how could this be? How could people go along? And why would they go along? You know, knowing that it's crushing their business. I've watched businesses here in the Phoenix area go out of business because they said you're not essential. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> what can you say to that? Say, people, don't let you don't let them just run over you. I mean, you work 20 years building your business and you walk away from it. But this has been repeated, not just in America, but it's all throughout the world. Free market economics is suffering its final death death throes right now if they continue with the coup d'etat unrestrained. The, unrestrained is the issue right now, I think. You know, well, yeah, this, this was my, you hit on my question. You know, just, just today I was reading that the German Economic Institute warned that the new crown virus uh, restrictions, new restrictions will cause major damage to the catering and, and retail sectors. And as you, as you laid out, this is exactly their plan. If you understand that it's not about protecting us, it's about destroying the economy. And it seems to be like a war of uh, attrition. As you said, is this, this, cap, this big free market capitalist beast or whatever is left of it. And it's been one year and it's two years. And now we're going on three years. And they just keep with you know knives cutting at, at this beast. And how long do you think this is going to continue? I mean, as you said, they've been trying to do this for decades. Do you think uh, they're getting close or... Or they're going to need like five more years to, to wow. keep us in lockdown. We are so close right now. It's 
we're, we're in harm's way, I'll put it this way. We, and, and there's no way to tell, you can't foresee the future, right? We don't have a crystal ball, truly. So, you know, we're not like, uh, I don't know, the prophets or something where we can say, yeah, on, on March 1st, something's going to happen and this is that. But we can kind of read the signs of what's going on and read the writings of what our enemies are doing. And right now we're hanging by such a thread that any type of a, a major black swan event could sink the whole ship. It really could. And let's back up a little bit. I know you're, you and your, your audience <clears throat> uh, is a lot more up on the, the global stuff, <laughs> uh, economic stuff than most. Last year, about mid-year, um, I did a couple of articles on the damage that was being done to the supply chain, the global supply chain. This supply chain was built as a result of the move towards interdependence that started in the early 70s with David Rockefeller and Zbigniew Brzezinski. There was no call for interdependence at that time, but they said, oh, this is the wave of the future. Trust us. You know, we're, we're going we're gonna, to, you know, play to this big interdependence thing. And the idea was we're going to integrate and, and pull together the economies of the world, kind of sew them together. Part of the craziness of this is, well, you know, if we do this, we can prevent future wars because if everybody's in everybody else's pocket, they can't afford to go to war with each other. Because, well, that didn't work out too well, but <clears throat> that was the idea. I, I was there. I, I read all that garbage at the time. Well, this interdependence is what created the supply chain that we have in the world today, where all these countries are shipping things back and forth, value added here in this country, and it goes to another country and it gets more stuff done and more parts or whatever. Um, this was part and parcel of globalization that was created since the 1970s, and it ran for the 70s, 80s, 90s, and the by and large, up to at least to 2010, let's say. And the supply chain got more and more compressed. It got more and more integrated. <clears throat> the whole concept of just-in-time manufacturing was just fine-tuned down to the minute almost. Um, and so now when we, when we see this economic system that had been created, this interdependent system, it was all dependent ultimately on the supply chain working the way they said it had to work. So when, when the supply chain started to have some hiccups in the middle of last year, and I started you know, reading some global economists uh, that, that pay attention to this sort of stuff, I said, this is an earthquake waiting to happen. It's starting to happen in slow motion. If the supply chain fails, the global economy fails, period. That's globalization. That's what it was. And we're seeing this every month. The supply chain is getting worse. There's more, there's more signs of the, the cracks in the dike, if you will, and the water is coming out. And people continue to say stock market still is making record highs on all cylinders. 
and yet the supply chain dam is about to burst and blow everything that came to come. And we don't know when that's going to be. We don't know when the market is going to run, for instance, equities market is going to run out of steam and sentiment's going to go the other direction. And it takes a nosedive of the 20, 30, 40% within a period, say, of three or four months. We don't know when those 100 plus and 50 ships that can't get unloaded off of Long Beach in California. We don't know how long or how many, how much more backlog is going to be out there. We don't know what's going to happen to the agricultural food chain, for instance, now that's integrated with all these other countries in the world. We're not self self-sufficient in America anymore intentionally so. We ship in produce and, and other stuff, meat and so on, from South America, from Mexico, uh, even from China, and from Vietnam and other, other parts of Asia. These are things we always to do ourselves. We had our own farms, our own factory, food factories, whatever. So the supply chain is being dismantled right under our nose. That was part of COVID. That was part of the COVID. I believe that was part of the COVID, COVID plan. Scare the pants off of people so they don't dare go to work. So they don't dare run those ships. So they don't dare run those railroads or those trucks. Get the truckers to quit. Get them, you know, get those smaller companies out of the way so that you can begin to consolidate all of the smaller elements of the supply chain into the, you know, into the, um, I don't know, the, the Siemens, the IBMs, the, you know, the cargoes uh, of, the, of the world. This has been happening every month since this COVID thing started. And it could come unglued at any time. I think it's so fragile right now that we could wake up some morning and boom, there's the headline. There was a headline today, by the way, <clears throat> that uh, Harry Reid died, Senator, he, was a, he ran the Senate in America for years. Rush Limbaugh called him Dirty Harry, <laughs> and he was, he was. He was one of the dirtiest politicians that ever walked the face of the earth. He was 82 years old. Now, nobody expected Dirty Harry to die, but he woke up to the headline. Yeah, we also had yeah. Desmond Tutu just passed and- Yes, well, this is another one, uh, perfect. Actually, we're getting a lot of people, especially we got a, a lot of people dropping dead, especially, you know, on the or on the sports field. People know what I'm talking about. You know, we're seeing people just drop uh, either with health problems or, or other issues. But um, I, I wanted to kind of look at and I agree with you. I, I think every day, like I'm, I'm worried that, you know, banks are going to fail, you know, as all of the ripple effects of what you're yes. talking about, the cyber uh, pandemic, banks failing, not having access to for us to, to buy anything, the, the supermarkets uh, having empty shelves, and on and on it goes. And uh, I wanted to kind of look at some of the trends in technocracy that that uh, you talk about, uh, what, what they want to do on the other side uh, of this. And so, you know, one of the things that caught my eye was a story that you recently shared in your newsletter, uh, extra special crazy, I think, uh, uh, headline, where the, in the UK, I think they were discussing the removal of private car uh, ownership. Now, openly, they're discussing this in, in the UK and other countries. And, you know, just a personal anecdote, when I returned, and, and I, I've known about this plan for a long time, you've talked about it and, and in many other 
people, you know, it's, it intertwines with that climate agenda and, and other things where, you know, I returned to Mexico uh, last year and I noticed this immediately here. Uh, I noticed the obscene amount uh, of money that was being poured into public transport, subways, trams, buses, bus stops. There, 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 were, there, are, there are no bus stops here, but all of a sudden, for, you know, there never were bus stops here in Mexico. You just have to know where the bus stop is. And now you've got little shiny metal roofs uh, everywhere. Uh, Uber, Uber is ubiquitous. They're replacing car lanes with bike and pedestrian lanes. They're up increasing car taxes and fines. They're installing more cameras uh, everywhere in the city that really restrict your movement and, and speed. Over the past year, I've literally gotten over a half dozen speeding tickets, maybe even like um, a dozen speeding tickets, which has never happened to me before. And I think this kind of demonstrates the accelerating pace at which they are implementing, you know, the smart city, the, the, the technocracy. And, and, you know, just one more example, just trying to go downtown here in Mexico with the car. There are a few remaining public uh, parking lots that take cash. But apart from that, I mean, they might close someday, but you're no longer able to pay for parking anymore because you have to use an app that is required to pay for the city parking. They don't take cash anymore. And so if you don't take your smartphone with you, you can't pay for parking and risk getting a huge fine. So, you know, what are your thoughts on, it's just an assault from all perspectives, but, you know, your, your thoughts on taking away our, our, our cars, you know, in a few years, we, we might not be able to drive our own car. Mm -hmm. I think anybody could go back and read the original Agenda 21 document and some from the United Nations. They could go back and read the 2030 Agenda document. <clears throat> they could read the New Urban Agenda documents at the, the major conferences that the UN produced these documents. You can find out exactly uh, from kind of a, a, an infrastructure point of view what's going on today. You can see all those things, every single one of them. You, you, you know, talked about food and how food is going to diets were going to have to be changed. And, you know, you're going to eat insect protein instead of fresh tomatoes and, you know, steak or whatever. And it talked about getting all the cars off the road, going to carbon zero, you know, net zero uh, by 2030. Um you know, talk about getting rid of golf courses, talk about ticking off a lot of people who play golf, which is a lot of people in the world. Um, you know, it talked about, uh, you, you know, personalized taxation because of how your lifestyle, how you live. And, you know, you have a swimming pool. Well, no, no, no. The swimming pool uses up way too much water. You know, you're going to pay for that. You're going to get an extra tax. Um, all these things were in the works for decades, since 1992. So that, that part really wasn't too much of a surprise. I kind of look at it as softening things up and getting ready for the big, you know, finale, the grand finale. They weren't enough in themselves to get people all worked up, but it sure did get people used to the idea that this is this is where we need to go. And so the, most of the world laughed at the climate crowd and they said, well, you know, the seas are going to rise and this, that, and the other, we're all going to die. And, and they said, you're going to have to make sacrifices and, you know, you have to change your lifestyle, probably go back to somewhere about 1875 or so in your lifestyle and be more frugal with your consumption. Uh, you know, you're going to have to have less children 
Nixon. And I mean, it just went on and on. And nobody really paid much attention to him, even though their policies got implemented all over the world, thanks to the United Nations spreading the seeds like weeds, you know, into the good soil. And these weeds started coming up. And that's why you see stuff coming out of England now about, let's, hey, we're, we're finally going to get rid of those pesky old cars because now we really can't afford them. Um, and these kinds of things will continue, but you couldn't take those things collectively and say, well, there's, that's a coup d'etat. It wasn't, and it isn't by itself. It's a warm-up. It's certainly a softening of society, preparing for the day when a coup d'etat can come about. And I think that's what happened last year in January, at least, of 2020. What I think that was the point of inflection for these people to say, we're going to rip it all down now and, and just be done with it. And and out of that, the build back better thing, that's going to be part of it is, you know, all the things you talk about there, the Green New Deal, all that stuff. That's what's going to come out of this in the end. And it's going to be essentially a scientific dictatorship where every single facet of your life will be micromanaged by these madmen and women, <laughs> I guess, um, to where you won't have any decisions to make for your life, basically. They'll make them all. You need a vaccine? Bend over. <laughs> and do you think we're going to, I mean, my impression is that we're going to, like, we're, the, the coup already happened, I, I guess, and, you know, maybe we're waiting for that moment of the supply chain uh, to collapse and, you know, create this huge panic. And, you know, from there, do you think we're just going to, ease into it where over the months and years they're just going to keep adding these restrictions or you think it's going to be like one you know one major event that's going to switch all these things on or it's just going to be <laughs> easing into it yeah that's a probably a two-sided coin the people pretty well understand what a black swan event now it's kind of an event that happens out of the blue nobody's really expecting it but it's really negative and it's really you know foundational to something um when you talk about a black swan event, you have to give mental assent to the possibility of a white swan event, right? If, it, if you can have a black swan, you could also have a white swan that would be just the opposite, where something would happen, something good would come out of it. I'm not too hopeful, but it's, you know, it's a possibility. The black swan event right now that could take everything apart, and this is mostly what concerns me personally, <clears throat> is the the scripting out and the role playing uh, of a global financial collapse of the internet. And uh, I, I don't believe that's going to happen any more than we had a virus that was going to kill the world either, but um, they're, they're running simulations on this right now as we speak. The big players, we're talking about the big guns of the world, not just little people, but, you know, the like they did with Event 201 on the pandemic, which happened in what was a September, October of 2019. Nobody paid attention to that because it was just a quiet little meeting somewhere, a small room. But when people discovered it after COVID hit, it was like, ooh, <laughs> Why were they, you know, why is it happening just like they said in that meeting and the videos are coming out? Well, <clears throat> right now we've seen chatter um, starting probably six months, 
about six months ago from where we are right now, that the next major threat is going to be internet-related, financial-related because of that. And the internet um, is the backbone of the supply chain. <laughs> the supply chain won't work without the internet, period. It is all dependent upon the proper functioning of the internet. <clears throat> and that's on a global basis, not just necessarily one local. When you get a local outage, like let's say if Los Angeles lost its ability, say for, oh, I don't know, 12 hours to, <clears throat> to have access to major services on the, on the internet. Uh, not only would banks be shut down, ATMs would be shut down. Stores would not be able to take credit cards to sell food. And who carries cash anymore, right? Um, purchase orders couldn't be sent to vendors because they're sent by email. Um, payments could not be sent because they're sent by payment services, either bank wire or something. It's all based on the internet sitting at your terminal, just like we're sitting in front of our computers right now, right? Sitting at home. You're in Mexico. I'm in Arizona, little Mexico sometimes, but I'm sitting up here and you're sitting down there. We can do anything. Just give us a keyboard, baby. Give us the internet and we can conquer the world, right? Well, all those people out there that are conquering the world in the supply chain and all these big companies and stuff operating around the world, if their terminals get shut down, business comes to a screeching halt. Boom. I mean a screeching halt. It's like a car going 50 miles an hour down a street and all of a sudden it hits a dumpster. <laughs> you, are, you are stopped right now. And you're not going anywhere because your engine's busted and you're not, you know, whatever. You can't can't get it going again. Well, and, and I, you know, I, I wouldn't be able to get any donations. So this podcast couldn't <laughs> continue yes. uh, uh, much uh, longer beyond that. I'd have to go sell tacos on the street or something or wash windshields. <laughs> but um, right kinda... now, you, we can we can have a we can have a cart together. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I guess this leads me then. This is I think a lot of us are asking this question. Where do they want to go with this? So if if they if they do this, which they probably maybe will will do at some point, um, you know, what's one vector that springs to mind for me is the cashless uh, society. You know, and I'm seeing more and more white papers and reports yeah. from all kinds of different countries. Uh, you know, just recently, Canada, uh, can, uh, white paper from the Central Bank of Canada discussed the creation of digital cash that can be used offline. To replace physical cash so that's kind of interesting so you're having you know people say oh you can't use digital cash because you don't have the internet as you say but they're figuring out a way then uh where, where you have well you will have offline digital cash and get this you know they're going to uh in order to protect you from losing your physical or digital cash they're graciously going to program your new digital cash to expire so that way you can't lose it and um, you know, I, I know there's people like Catherine, uh, Catherine Austin Fitz and, and others that say, you know, cash Fridays, use cash. Uh, ever since I was a teenager, for me, it was just common sense. I only use cash. I, I don't use cards or digital stuff for purchases uh, in the real world. Uh, but I, I kind of feel like we're losing the battle and ultimately we're going to be pushed into the world of, of digital currency. So, you know, is this one of their one of the places they want to take us? This is a cashless society. Yes, absolutely. 
<clears throat> Absolutely so. And I, I, th I think Fitz probably has talked a lot about that. I have too, because I've seen it coming for years. I mean, I was talking about it back six, seven years ago, that the, the move to cash assist is already underway. And at that time, five, say five, six years ago, the central banks were still like hemming and hawing. You know, well, well, we had a task force, but we canceled it, you know, and well, we're going to do it again now, though, you know, six months later. And it went back and forth. And I, I looked at that whole thing, knowing enough about the bank for international settlements and how international banking works. I says, don't, don't trust these snakes for a minute. They have a plan for a digital currency that's going to take over all economic activity on the planet. That was the original idea of this whole thing. All economic activity will be under their, their thumb. All production, all use of resources, and all consumption will be controlled by them. There's only one way to control it. Well, actually, there's two ways. One is controlling energy, because all economic output requires energy, right? Everything. No energy, no factories run. Cars don't run. You know, your house doesn't get warm. Um, the other thing is currency, whatever that might be. The, in other words, that's currency is the oil in your like the oil in your car that keeps your engine from burning up. You have to have you know that lubricant. That's what currency that the the function that currency provides is the ability to keep things moving along, keeping transactions flowing and keeping people happy. You know, people buying you know, on the street whatever when they come to your cart to buy a taco, they're going to give you some pesos. <laughs> That's, you know, that, that keeps things moving. Um, <clears throat> so those are the two control points for controlling economic activity. And that's why the central banks right now, from the top down, including, and when I say from the top down, the Bank for International Settlements is, is totally into this. And every central bank around the world is totally into this. And the IMF and the World Bank, the other two key global banking institutions, are totally committed to a digital blockchain currency. And the purpose, it, and it, it goes beyond that, though. It's not just the currency factor. It's also all of the wealth in the world, in their minds, needs to be tokenized so that it can be documented where everything is and where everything sits. So... It's not, you know, when you talk about, well, money, money is transitory. I give you $10, you give me $10, whatever goes back and forth, back and forth. <clears throat> Assets of the world have value too. You own a house, you own a farm, you own a car. They're, they're, there's value. You had to pay money to get those things. But in their mind, they don't want to just stop at controlling the money. They want to control all the wealth that backs up that money as well. That's why they're talking about digitizing or, uh, you know, blockchainizing value across the planet. Assets, strips, uh, you know, big swaths of land, the rainforest, the, you know, the, uh, the big uh, preserves in Bolivia and uh, Chile and, you know, in these other countries around the world, Africa. Um, they want to take ultimately all the value of the world and put it on blockchain and then control the blockchain. They will control all the wealth in the world. 
the, the underlying resources of the wealth in the world, put it that way. That's, that's what the game has been since 1973. We wrote about that in the 70s. The game was getting control of the resources of the planet. That's what they were after. They knew, I uh, personally, I think Rockefeller fully understood in 1973 that there would be a natural catastrophic end to fiat currency. That was right after gold was decoupled from the dollar. And I think he understood this. Only an idiot looked at it, could, could not understand that, I think. And he was a money guy. He, he, he's the chairman of Chase, uh, Chase Manhattan Bank, which is now J.P. Morgan Chase. But he understood this. He knew that money was going to money was not going to represent wealth or value. Ultimately, it was going to lose all its value. So in his mind, well, let's just get the resources. If we have the resources, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what kind of currency we put on the top. If you own the farms, if you own the land, if you own the oil, if you own all the resources, Basically, you're take, you know, they're taking us back to a neo-feudal type of a system where a few people own everything and the paupers, like you and I, own nothing and you have to, oh, yeah, uh, good old Klaus Schwab said that, didn't he? He said, you can, you'll own nothing and you'll be happy, 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 he said. You'll be so happy to owning nothing. Um, I have to ask, so Klaus... If I own nothing and I'm happy, and I'm glad to be happy, don't get me wrong, I want to be happy, I really do. If, if I'm ha if I'm happy, and I, who does own all that stuff that Nobody I'm does. happy I don't have? <laughs> Somebody owns it, right? So somebody's not happy because they own <laughs> everything. Else. Somebody's got to own the stuff. Well, this has been the plan for a very long time, and we're seeing it come to place right now. Where when this when the dust settles on this, and this is why I say this is not communism. Communism is like managed economy. <clears throat> there's going to be no communism in this. There's no socialism. They're not sharing anything with you. They're giving you no rights. You're not just going to have managed rights. You're going to have no rights. You will do everything they tell you to do in lockstep without any resistance, or you'll just be thrown out of the system completely and you won't be able to survive um cashless society yeah it's going to all be digitized on blockchain ultimately and they will control all the assets and there was a very telling uh i, I don't know if you've ever been into the concept of socioeconomics that was proposed by uh, Robert Pretcher some years ago. It's an interesting look at economics and you know how society goes up and down. But um, Jack Dorsey, the founder and um, CEO of Twitter, <laughs> who was who was at least in America, he's one of the one of the uh, CEO technocrat rats that people love to hate. <laughs> he's got a reputation. And um, he's not a communist, by the way. He's not a socialist either. He's a technocrat. And he, he walks like one, he talks like one, and he acts like one. He's a technocrat. Well, he left Twitter. But he didn't leave Twitter to retire to a fishing village in uh, Argentina, right? He, he quit to commit himself fully to the Bitcoin world, to blockchain. 
okay. This was actually my next question. You know, I, I don't recall if I asked you last time, but I've asked, uh, I recently talked to Jay Dyer. I asked him about this. Uh, he had a different perspective, but uh, yeah. I, I think that for me, it still feels I'm leaning towards that Bitcoin and cryptos are, I'll call it like a globalist Trojan horse that it was used to segue bridge us into this EBDC yes. cashless world. What, what are your thoughts? Yeah. I do. I absolutely do. And I, I think a lot of people got a lot of benefit out of <clears throat> um, out of uh, Bitcoin and other blockchain currencies along the way. But the only difference between and this is what the central banks are saying right now. And I, you know, I, I spoke about this years ago when Bitcoin was first really kind of coming around. <clears throat> it's nice to have transactions that are recorded in the blockchain that is distributed. That's a that's a great idea. Um, but what if, and, and, and they could just stay distributed like that. It's great to have multiple copies of them and stuff where you can always reconstruct what happened. Uh, if you lose one node, you go and get it over here. That's a wonder. That's a great thought. But what if somebody figures out how to intercept those transactions? And instead of simply putting them into the, into the blockchain, they say, well, why don't we just flash that transaction back to our central computer at the Bank of England or at the uh, Federal Reserve or whatever the case might be? And let's just record those transactions uh, in a master database. Hmm. They can be distributed, but we're going we're gonna to keep the master copy, you see. <laughs> for our, just for safekeeping, they might say. But once that mentality gets loose, if the, if the transactions that are done in the world are recorded in a central database at a central bank, they will control everything. Everything. I saw an article. I remember I saw an article. It's been years. I probably, pro oh gosh, I want to probably maybe even 2000, uh, I can't remember, at least five, at least six, seven years ago where um, somebody was, that was um, big in the stock market world and the financial transactions that take place during the stock market. <clears throat> and it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a crazy world to try and understand because there are so many transactions going back and forth all the time. I mean, the, the New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ is just absolute computer zoo <laughs> with all this stuff flowing. And one little hiccup can just cause huge damage, right? <clears throat> so somebody was suggesting, what if we could, what if we could just control all that stuff from a central place? Uh, every transaction that takes place, every transfer of money, uh, every trade, um, all of the other details and stuff surrounding it, how much more efficient would the stock market be and safe and secure and this, that, and the other? And how easy would it be for us to charge a transaction tax on that if we had that data in one central place? And they were just kind of thinking through and their own little nefarious minds how great this would be. And I'm thinking to myself, you rats, you're, you're going you're gonna to figure out a way to get your taxation hands onto every little transaction in the world. And that's, you know, this is where we're at right now. That's exactly what they're trying to do. And we see it in the central banks now and every, virtually every country in the planet. And, and not only just tax, but have the ability to deplatform us from the real, not just digital, but real space. And this kind of segue, segues into my 
um, next question, which it seems to be that all of the stuff that we've been talking about, they're rolling up uh, for now into the smartphone and maybe soon uh, chip implants that we was just reported in Sweden that 6,000 people have been uh, chipped and they put their vaccine certificates, vaccine passports in the chip that they were uh, implanted in them. This is mainstream news, but now they're creating the, the smartphone is your digital ID, digital passport, uh, vaccine, digital passport, QR code thing. And just uh, the UK, just a, a day or two ago, put out a white paper, the UK government saying that now your COVID digital passports are going to have like your digital ID that you're going to use for getting jobs, um, for getting social security or whatever. And it's like, you will have to have your smartphone with you. You can't live without it. Literally, you're going to have to walk around with it uh, outside uh, or you can't do anything. And, you know, I read an article from Kazakhstan now because I was living there and I spoke to a friend recently uh, who's there who said that you you now have to have this app in Kazakhstan on your phone called Ashuk, and it gives you the green status, which only if you're vaccinated, you can obtain, which only lasts for a year. So I assume you have to uh, get it annually. And you have the blue status if, if, if you're not vaccinated. And in the two major cities, Almaty and, and Nur Sultan, everywhere you go now, sh- supermarkets, uh, malls, you cannot enter without scanning, without having a green status. In the small st- rural areas, he says, there, most places are still not asking for this. So, I mean, what are your thoughts on this vaccine passport, digital ID, social credit system? <clears throat> this, is, this has been uh, a desire of global elite for uh, at least 20 years. And it's, uh, you know, it's really obvious right now that there's a global idea is coming. Uh, It's maturing, it's percolating in every country that's dealing with COVID. Um, We have it on multiple issues right now, not just COVID, but there's there's been a push in America for a a national ID uh, for, oh gosh, at least 20 years. But we see this desire to control, to catalog and control people. It's like, um, you know, it's like um, the organization ICANN uh, controls the Internet. All of the it's like the master phone book for the Internet, right, where every IP address is is recorded and cataloged as to where it is, who owns it, you know, who who pays for it, that sort of thing. Um, You, you have the same thing going on with people right now, <laughs> that people, they want to catalog people and then track them once they're cataloged. That's part of the, the master plan for the world, tech, the technocrat plan for the world, because you can control what you can monitor. And, and you can monitor by identification. You have to actually have to have identification in order to monitor. So. It's not so much about whether or not you're going to take a vaccine. That just happens to be the convenient thing that's attached to it right now. That's a good prop. You know, hey, the reason we need to do this is because we're going to protect you from COVID, you know, so you better do it. Oh, yes, I guess I better I better get my passport right now. All of a sudden you step into that um, thinking all of a sudden you're you're going to be tracked for every for every day and every minute for the rest of your life because they got their hooks in you. It's the same thing with the shots going into people's arms right now. There's they got, they're up to four now, I think, right? Some places like Israel. <clears throat> Does anybody anymore really think that's ever gonna stop or is it gonna be a perpetual 
lineup of boosters for the rest of our lives. And basically, you know, you can see that coming. Well, is it really just about protecting people's health that they want to do this? Or is there another motive behind it? Yes, there is. We we don't need to talk about that necessarily, but you get my point. It makes good theater to get things done under the cover that they want to do. And it just just so happens the, the, the virus plays into it perfectly, perfectly. Let's do all kinds of things. And, and, you know, you know, getting toward the end of the interview, I always ask, like, uh, on the practical level, as well as a collective citizenry, you know, what do we do? I see, I see general trends uh, of people departing from urban areas, moving toward the rural, having, you know, growing your own food, having water and, and so forth. Um, I know we need to, as citizens, resist, and and I still try to do that. But I, I kind of have this pessimistic scenario where it's just like run to the hills, and you know, what do we do? How do we resist all of this? What are what are your thoughts? I um, I listened to a couple of great interviews by a Belgian uh, professor of clinical psychology who brought up the idea of mass formation. I'm sure you're familiar with that, uh, perhaps with that interview. Made a lot of sense to me, this idea of mass formation in society, where uh, an entire segment of society falls into a delusion and they begin acting very crazy. And it's almost like they're following a religious cult or something at this point. And he, he, he gave all the conditions, the four conditions necessary to bring about mass formation. And it's kind of like hypnosis on a personal basis, but it's on a societal basis. And he didn't he, he, he made a point not to call it hypnosis, by the way. So don't get me wrong. I'm not saying it is either. <clears throat> but mass formation has taken over half the world right now. And that's why there's half, about half the world, maybe 40% are running after this with abandon. And the other, you know, maybe 30, 40% that are not subject to mass formation at this point um, <clears throat> are saying, wake up people, <laughs> get, come out of there. Well, here's what one of his conclusions was. And I realize they're culturally sensitive in Europe to, mass formation they've had uh, they've had the bolshevik revolution they had the german revolution they had the french revolution i mean there's all kinds of stuff in their history they're culturally sensitive to this issue americans are not we just don't have anything you know they don't teach it don't have it in our history book we don't have oral tradition where stuff is told to us from generation to generation but they do in europe and he said this is the interesting thing <clears throat> the only antidote to mass formation, he says, is free speech. I tell you, that jumped out of the interview at me because of my work with Citizens for Free Speech. I thought, what did he just say? He's saying that that free speech is the only antidote to stop mass formation. Otherwise, it's unstoppable. So the 30% that still have their wits about them need to speak up and keep speaking no matter what, because the mass formation crowd will seek to snuff your free speech to shut you up. That's censorship. We see this all over the world. I had so many major things kind of click in my mind when I heard that interview the first time. But here's the really, really disturbing thing about his interview. 
is a very thoughtful guy. He wasn't a rat, didn't appear to me to be a radical, you know, on a soapbox, pounding his fist or anything like that at all. He's just a very reasoned guy. He just said, hey, man, that's the way I see it. Um, and he's a clinical psychologist. Okay, fine. Uh, so <clears throat> he said, when, when mass formation is in play and free speech dies, if it dies, he said, that's when the killing begins. And I thought to myself, holy crud, what did he just say? <laughs> and it just made perfect sense to me. When people can no longer protest, and there's no accountability by the people who are going to do the killing, and of course, the scapegoat is always identified by that time. When the killing starts, it's always right after the free speech has been canceled completely. <clears throat> that is one of the most sobering thoughts I've had, and it still kind of haunts me, even as I'm telling you right now. The killing will start when free speech is dead. <sighs> That's why I'm working so intently and hard with citizens for free speech here in america yeah this is this is something that even since the beginning i i've been talking about uh when it was kind of crazy to talk about it this because i've studied history and, and this is where it goes like what we're witnessing now there's a chance you know if it keeps going it's going to end up in what you just said killing a mass killing of people around yeah. the world it's as you said it's a very sobering thought and a lot of people can't handle that and just like this yeah. is the cold, hard reality, and we have to face this, which, uh, as you said, will then inspire us to, I, I think, as it has inspired you, and maybe you can tell us, I, I see that you switched from focusing maybe a little less on the technocracy stuff, and now you're focusing on citizens for, for free speech. So maybe you can tell us about that. Well, I certainly do. Yeah, I, I still speak a lot on technocracy and stuff. That, that's so critical that people understand who the enemy is. But but if our if our only way out in terms of resistance is maintaining free speech, then we need to do everything we can to equip people to be vocal, to learn how to be vocal, learn how to persuade others to their position, to share their ideas and stuff uh, in, in a civil manner so that it doesn't end up in a fist fight. Um, <clears throat> but Citizens for Free Speech went through the roof when COVID hit. Um, and people immediately saw when the face muzzles went on, when social distancing came in, when breaking up uh, assemblies uh, came in, when churches were shut down, <laughs> people intuitively got it. Yeah, there's some problems out there. I'm sure some people are sick and some people are dying and God bless them. I don't want to see anybody die. I certainly don't. But there was a lot of people that immediately saw, hey, I don't think this has anything really to do so much with a sickness as it does with shuttering free speech, because you cannot have free speech when you have a face muscle on. Half, half the population cannot understand you, and you can't understand half of them. And so, and, you know, when churches shut down, it was like, what? Only a few stood up and said no, and nothing happened to them, by the way. Um, you know, they're still, they're still open. The churches are still doing great. Uh, a lot of other churches did shut down. They lost their funding. They lost their members. And they said, well, I guess I'm going to go get a job as an insurance salesman or something, you know, whatever. 
Um, but they saw it as a free speech issue, and that's the way I saw it, and that's the way I still see it to this day. This is an attack on free speech like we've never had before. And, and just some recent examples that I saw just today, yesterday, we, we just saw uh, Steve Kirsch, maybe who, who you follow, this millionaire who's writing about the, the health crisis now, who was terminated from LinkedIn just today. Robert Malone was kicked off of uh, Twitter. And also this morning, I saw Ezra Levant of Rebel News in, in Canada, who do great work, just saying uh, he, um, they were going to purchase an office building for their media operation. And his commercial mortgage application was declined because of his uh, politics. So again, this is part of that whole you know, censorship and social credit system that just keeps in intensifying. Um, I asked my last guest, this Jim Jatras, former... Um, diplomat who happens to be uh he, he's run run for the hills in rural virginia he he happens to be an orthodox christian and you know i'm a christian uh you're christian as well and i i even see many secular people referencing uh, the bible and the times that that we're living in so i thought i might ask you know could we be possibly living through what john the revelator on the isle of patmos uh, wrote about in the book of revelations short of a white swan event happening we're headed that way. I think we're headed towards that period of time. Um, <clears throat> and it would be wrong. Uh, and I don't believe that, that the book of tribulation uh, is now happening right now. I think that's still future tense. But we can see the book. I believe we can see the building blocks moving around right now that will, uh, that will prepare the way, if you will, for that horrible, horrible time in the future. Um, it would be wrong to put God in a box and say it has to happen that way because God can turn the hands back on anything is, you know, that's why he's God and we're not. <laughs> so, um, I, I disagree with a lot of Christians to say, oh, we might just throw up your hands and forget it. You know, we're doomed and, you know, run for the hill sort of thing. I disagree with that because. Uh, you know, back in, in Nazi Germany, the Christians of that day were certain that the that Hitler was Antichrist and that the book of Revelation, uh, Christ's return was just around the corner. They really believed that. And yet, and it looked like it. You can look back and read the history books. It sure looks like it to me, even from today's point of view. But for whatever reason, God turned back the hands of tyranny. And the world kind of recovered, and here we are today, right? We're 80 years later, 80 years on. We're still in it. <clears throat> it. It just is inappropriate to say, God must do it this way or else, I don't know what else, you know. He can turn it back. He can put a stay on this, and he can turn it around if he so chooses to do. Would I want him to do that? I would go for that. I mean, I'd be fine with that. But what if it doesn't? What if it just continues to go and just spiral down into the ground and whatever, and all of a sudden, we see the evidence of the four horsemen, for instance, you know, that are traversing the world and death is following the pale horse. And, uh, well, that so be it. If, if, if Bible prophecy is going to play out and it's straight ahead, then, uh, you know, that was God's plan from a long time ago <laughs> since before the foundation of the world and it's his uh it's his baby it's his world he can do what he wants to do with it yeah i'd agree with you I'm and okay way 
I'm okay either way. But the way I look at it is we occupy until he comes. And we have some social responsibility. At least I feel this way. We have some social responsibility to our brothers and sisters who are roaming the street in a fog, whether they're part of mass formation or just idiots. <laughs> they're, they're walking around in a fog. They don't know which way to turn. They're in great peril and jeopardy. Christians should be like what in the Old Testament is referenced to as the sons of Issachar. I love that little tribe, one of the 12 tribes. The sons of Issachar, it says, had exceptional wisdom. It doesn't say how they got it, other than God gave it to them, but he said they understood the times and what Israel should do. They understood the times, and you know that really kind of speaks to me today. This should be the condition of Christians today, that they understand the times, number one, so that they can tell people what they should do, right? How they should respond, how, how they should react, to be that salt and light, if you will, to, to get the truth across, the worldview across correctly to people, so that they might be taken out of harm's way in some way, you know? so. Um, whenever the Lord comes, I'm fine with that. I'm, I'm ready. I would just say if it's today, great. But if it's not, if we have to wake up tomorrow and do this all over again, I'll do it exactly the same way. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you being, you know, content with whether it's tomorrow, you know, the great reset, uh, or in another century, uh, we have to keep, uh, I guess, uh, plowing the field, right? Uh, and resisting. And you know, that's what I'm doing with the podcast. Otherwise, I'd be off in, in some farm in rural Mexico, but I'm still here. Uh, you're still there. Uh, and others that I've talked to as well, like the Canadian pastor, Arthur Palowski, uh, he said the same thing that he thinks exactly like you, that he thinks this could be it, uh, or maybe not. As, as you use the example of the 1930s, it could be pushed back if we push it back or if God decides another 50 years, 20 years, 50 years, uh, a century. Uh, and so we just got to keep Keep resisting, and uh, whether you're a Christian or not, you know, fighting against tyranny, injustice, and, and all of these things, uh, and trying to help as many people as you can, especially the ones uh, who are around you, right? Your local community, city, country. Uh, any final thought then uh, for us? No, I actually I have one. There is a very important book that I would recommend to you if you haven't already read it, and certainly to your readers that would really help understand. Uh, kind of what's going on economically in the world today. And that is a book by a Harvard professor emeritus of um, sociology, and her name is Shoshana Zuboff, Z-U-B-O-F-F. She's written a, a very insightful book called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. I can't, I want to begin it to, to say what it's all about, but it is I I bought the audiobook, the Kindle, and the physical book. <laughs> I'm going, I'm reading them all, trying to internalize the whole thing. It's brilliant work. And it opened up a lot of new avenues for me to be thinking about stuff and you know what the reality of things are. I would recommend everybody get that book and read it and try and try and grab the concepts of what's going on and how things have changed in the last 20 years. Um one of the main points of it is we have to we have to face reality as best as we can close to what reality is 
that makes sense. You know, we all struggle with a concept of reality because depending on our stage in life and our knowledge, you know, our view of things changes. Reality hasn't really changed, but our view of it can change. So um, what Zuboff brings to the table is a deeper look at the reality that's going on in the world right now that can be fitted into the things that we're talking about right now. She doesn't mention the word technocracy in her book. I'm, I'm going to try and get, get a hold of her personally and talk to her about that part. But she has defined technocracy multiple times to the letter in her book and revealed things about the operation of originally of Google and then Facebook and then uh, other large uh, multinational corporations and stuff on how they have how they have changed the fabric of the economic system into one designated to turn you into a resource rather than a human. <laughs> and it's, it's just st stunning stuff. I won't say any more, but I would recommend people read that book. I've had that book on my wish list and I've read her articles, but now I'm going to go buy uh, the physical copy thanks to you know your recommendation of it. I actually reached out, tried reaching out to her like about a year or two ago to do an interview. Um, initially, we had talks with, with her people and I, I never got the interview through. So maybe I'll try again. Uh, and all right. So you are on technocracy.news. People can get your books uh, through your website, order them. I think they must buy all of your books. I've got I've got them all. Uh, and there's citizensforfreespeech.org. You're on Telegram now. You're not really using Twitter much. Um, apart from buying your amazing books, uh, anything else, website that, that we need to know or project of yours? You've, you've, you've got it all. Yep, that's it. And otherwise, don't give up, don't give in, and don't comply. <laughs> exactly. Don't, don't comply. Uh, all right. Uh, it's always great talking with you, Patrick. Hopefully, if the internet doesn't go down um, and they don't send us to the quarantine camps, uh, we can uh, get an update uh, in 2022 uh, with you. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast interview. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and I encourage you to sign up for the free email list through which you can receive an update of every new podcast, as well as a long list of key news headlines once a week. We're being heavily censored. YouTube has deleted some of our videos, and we currently have one strike. Patreon has terminated our account. Facebook has restricted our page, and Reddit has been the leading posts. Our favorite social media channels are Telegram and Twitter. The best places to watch the podcast beyond YouTube are on Odyssey, BitChute, and Brighteon. The best places to listen to the podcast are on SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, Google, or on any other podcast app. To help keep this podcast alive, leave a review on Apple Podcasts and wherever else, subscribe to all our platforms, and Leave a donation, if possible, via Subscribestar, PayPal, Bitcoin, or Ethereum. You can also find us on MeWe, Minds, Gab, Float, VK, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Thanks for listening.